that's what a young person can can bring to the table. You know, they're not going to bring usually capital unless they have an inherited wealth or or um, or experience, but they can bring an awareness of what's going on on the ground, and that becomes the currency through which you become valuable to people. You're listening to Cut Time from the Berkeley Music Business Journal. On today's episode, we're joined by Danny Goldberg. Danny has been an author, a record company executive, and has managed some of the most legendary artists of the 20th century. He has helped shape the music industry and has worked with everybody from Nirvana to Led Zeppelin. In this episode, we walk through Danny's career, talk about working with Peter Grant and Swansong Records, and how to stay afloat in the industry. I know you started off as, as a writer and as a journalist. Do you think you could kind of walk us through where this journey began for you and how, how you kind of got your foot in the door? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it started with something I would not suggest that any college student emulate, which is I, I dropped out of college after one week. It was uh, the fall of 1967, just after the summer of love. I enrolled in the University of California at Berkeley, and uh, I got so intoxicated in more ways than one with the counterculture and the hippie scene and so forth, and, and, and just never never went back to classes after the second week. Got in some trouble uh, by by the May of the following year, and had to go back to New York, uh, and uh, and and by that time I had turned eighteen, and I just wanted a job so I could get my own place and not have to live with my parents. Not a very you know very narrow agenda, <laughs> and there was. Um, in those, you know, there was a, those days. There was no Craigslist, or you know, it was the New York Times uh, classified ad help wanted section, and uh, there were two kinds of jo- most of the jobs said key punch operator, which was the equivalent in the '60s of I guess being someone who wrote code or something like that, and then uh-huh. there was one that said clerk for magazine. So I just uh, I just sort of had written for the high school newspaper, and I liked the word magazine. I didn't know what the magazine was, and the magazine turned out to be Billboard, which is a trade magazine right. of the music business then and now. In those days, there were three weekly trades for the music business. Now there's the one. And I got a clerical job, um, which turned out to be um, calling record stores to help get the what we today would call data uh, to uh, to help the people compile the charts, which was done in a much more uh, subjective way. There were no barcodes on records or anything. It was just asking clerks. They would tell you there was no way of checking in. And, How many and then when I found out uh, after a month or so that there were people in the, who worked there that were only a few years older than me that got to go to concerts and uh, uh, for free and write their opinion about them, I, I thought I may be a screw-up but I could do that, like you know. I, I'm a fan, and I know how to, I could, uh, you know. So, so I, I badgered them to let me review things, and uh, you know, the people were nice there, and and they 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 uh, would give me assignments when no one else w- wanted to cover them. I was kind of what you would call a stringer. So on a freelance basis, I would I would get to do pieces for them. And uh, once you have a byline, you exist. You know, uh, that was really something I didn't plan on at all. I stumbled into, but I quickly discovered it was an incredible uh, paradigm shift right away, calling people, if, if you had your name a few times, so the likelihood of getting someone to call you back was greater, and, you know, it just sort of, uh, I, I found out there was this thing called the music business, and uh, 
hung on for dear life as I still do today more than 50 years later just because I, I like music and I thought it was pretty cool given that I don't have any musical talent I can't play any instruments or read music or anything like that but still as a fan that I could make a living uh, being part of the uh, support structure for you know artists really really seemed like uh, something that I wanted to do and uh, so it was just little by little over the next several years that I developed an idea about what the business was and where I might fit into it. But my entry into it originally was a complete lucky accident. Seems like the door really just opened opened up. Well, it was a small door, but it was a door. And then it was a good time. You know, one thing about the music business is um, there are advantages to being younger. I mean, there are definitely disadvantages to being younger. Older people tend to run things and have more money and, uh, and not always so open-minded. But um, in the music business, there is an awareness that, that the center of the audience are younger people and that uh, music changes every couple of years in terms of what's massively popular. And uh, that people who are closer in age to the core audience and to some of the artists making the music do have a kind of cultural advantage, even if they have a business disadvantage. Right. And, and that's, that's a, so, so, so there's always room for some young people to, 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 to get in because of that. You know, uh, somebody 10 years old is just not going to hear. Right the next Billie Eilish or something, you know. We've, we've actually been talking about that a, a lot recently because it seems like the younger people have more of a voice than they did in the industry previously. As long as I've been around, there's always been a certain number of young people that just have to be brought in right. because they're closer culturally and understanding of the culture. That doesn't mean you can't learn a lot when you're older and you develop certain skills, relationships and clout when you get older that you may not have when you're younger. But 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 there are there are entry points. If you go up to Spotify, uh, you know, you can go floor after floor and just only see people in their 20s. I know that you covered Woodstock and you wrote an article. Was yeah. Billboard? it was it was the. Um, it was sometime in the fall of 68 when I first got the clerical chart department job there. And by the summer of 69, I, I was, uh, you know, uh, I maybe published a dozen pieces or so, short reviews of people that played at clubs or theaters like and that nobody else wanted to cover. And, and um, there were older staff writers who seemed ancient to me. They were probably in their 30s. Maybe the oldest was maybe 40-something, but they seemed like 100. And they were culturally on a completely different page because that was just a moment when there was this new wave of rock that I like being played on these new radio stations. You know, now today we would call it psychedelic or yeah. album rock or whatever. Artists like Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan and uh, others. And and the um, you know the older writers were just for the most part not into any of this. They were into. Uh, assignments where you could go to a club like the Copacabana and see Smokey Robinson the Miracles and get free dinner and drinks. That was an assignment I was never going to get. All of these staff writers wanted that assignment. Okay. But none of them wanted to go to Woodstock, you know. Uh, so I, I was being low man on the totem pole turned out to be a, a plus. And, and so the editor, everybody had passed on it, the idea of going up to the country somewhere and, you know, uh, and, and I immediately said yes, I'd heard about it from the local, you know, press or you know there was a, so enough of a buzz about it before well it was advertised right. you know i mean this was just like a week before when they asked me if i wanted to go so by that time it was advertised you, you know and 
they were local the, the big local weekly that would have things about the counterculture and about music was the village voice in new york city so i assume that's where i had seen it maybe maybe i'd heard somebody talking about it on on uh the radio but but yeah i mean it was it was woodstock it was a big it was the big music festival no one knew how big it was going to be but it was still bigger than you know shows at the Fillmore. you know nice, it was right. it was 50 people that played the Fillmore all in one play so i'd heard about it and was more than happy to go and it was a great way to go i went in a limo and had a hotel room i didn't have to get muddy <laughs> the next second day i'm on the grounds and I think some of the kids there I was only 19 but I think they thought maybe I was a narc or something because why didn't I have mud all over me and I had to explain no no I've been writing about it and I have a room you know sheepishly uh, uh, but uh, so uh, yeah I, I, I was thrilled to be there I was definitely part of the fan base of a lot of those artists of Hendrix and Johnny Winter and the first time I saw Santana was at Woodstock you know just as I was coming in and I was very deeply moved by the camaraderie of the gigantic crowd and you know wrote about it in appropriately rhapsodic terms right were there any particular standout artists other than Santana you know a long time ago and memory is such a funny thing especially when when it comes to something like Woodstock where there was quite a good movie made about Woodstock right. Woodstock it's called and it's uh it really captured I thought then and now you know the vibe of it so uh, sometimes I wonder, gee, did I see that in real life or did I see it in the movie? I know I saw Johnny Winter because I remember loving him and he's not in the movie. So that must be my actual memory, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, Hendrix, I know I didn't see. I fell asleep and uh, that I, I experienced through the movie. Santana, I remember for sure because I got there uh, when I when I finally got, you know, it took forever to get there and go through the crowds and walk and get to the point where you could hear the music that's who was playing when I first got there and I didn't know who they were and I asked people and I was just so so dazzled by the virtuosity of, of uh, and it was a, it was a, it was literally the first time I'd ever even heard them the, I was really really happy to be there and the experience of being in the crowd was equally important to the music for me right know? uh anyway it's widely documented who the artists were Joan Baez pregnant with you know, and the father of the baby was in jail for avoiding the Vietnam War, you know, draft evasion and so on, and uh, Richie Havens and, uh, you know, the, the, the different uh, different artists. Uh, yeah, but I saw I saw a lot of it. I certainly didn't see all of it. I did have a room. Even then, I was capable of getting, having a short attention span. <laughs> but it was uh, it was fun to be there. Yeah, I can't even imagine how amazing that was. So, going from being a writer and how did that transition to publicity well i was i i couldn't make a living ultimately as a writer i i wanted to be a writer i i my dream was to maybe like eventually be like the new york times rock critic that seemed like the ultimate ultimate job one could have or write for a place like the village voice or rolling stone and um, I couldn't get any of those jobs. I wasn't the greatest writer in the world. I rarely rewrote anything. I, I look back, there's a site called Rock's Back Pages that compiles rock journalism over the decades. Okay. And the guy who runs it went back and retrieved a bunch of my early articles, and there's a 30 of them there or so. And some of them are a little embarrassing to reread because I didn't, uh, it was like the first draft was the draft. That was it, you know. I, I, I was so preoccupied with the... Uh, 
just by being a kid, you know, I, I, I didn't have the greatest work ethic in the world. And, and you know, uh, there were people that were more serious about writing and were better writers. Uh, and um, so after a few years, as the industry went through its ups and downs, the industry is always going through different cycles. It grows, it contracts right now as we sit here. With the coronavirus spreading, there's probably going to be a, some level of contraction of the live business. We don't know how long it'll be, and how what the reverberations will be for the macro economy. But you know, there's always, it, it, over the decades, the only constant is change. And and I hit a brick wall and just didn't couldn't get a writing job. The, the, the last one I'd had was as one of the as the managing editor of a magazine called Circus, which was a rock magazine that kind of aspired to the same audience as Rolling Stone, but not quite as intellectual, but they had color pictures, which Rolling Stone didn't have. Oh. So Circus was the only rock magazine at that time that had color, and that was our big calling card. Anyway, they they hit a, they went under, they went on hiatus, I couldn't get a job, and but I had to pay the rent. I did not want to ask my parents for money. That was, uh, that was the last thing I wanted to do. And um, fortunately, through a journalist friend of mine, knew a guy named Lee Salters, who was the uh, creator of Salters and Roskin, and they had all major showbiz clients, Barbara Streisand and Frank Sinatra, Ringling Brothers Barman, Bailey Circus, things like that. And he wanted a young uh, rock person, because rock and roll was this growing sector in the business, and there was good business, and they needed somebody that could like talk to the clients that would do that and would be a magnet for that. So, so uh, I went to work uh, for Salters and Roskin, and uh, learned what PR really was from Lee Salters. I just had a pretty superficial understanding of it. I just thought, ask my friends for favors, because uh, there was kind of this subculture of people who wrote about rock and roll in right. New York. We'd get to know each other. We'd go to the same shows, the same parties. The, you know, it was a 50 or 60 of us, like a roving band of, of, uh, of, of rock writers. And uh, I thought the job was to just call all those people and ask them for favors. And Lee explained to me that there's a limited number of favors you can get, even from good friends. <laughs> and that it, it was more important to have a good story. And if you had a good story, you could call someone you didn't even know. And you weren't asking for a favor, you were doing something for them as much as they were doing something for you and to really understand what it meant to write the first paragraph of a press release or the headline of a press release or what to say the first 15 seconds you got on the phone with somebody to get them attention is a discipline that's still very useful to me to this day I think that's a skill that uh, really needs to be toned yeah you know now they call it you know what's the elevator pitch that's yeah, like right. a show in Hollywood they call that but it's the truth that, 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 that this generation of Twitter and social media is not the first uh, one with a short attention span. We, we had short attention spans then, too. too. <laughs> and, 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 and people who were editors who were being pitched by dozens and dozens of press people all the time, you better, you better uh, get it out in the first minute or the first paragraph uh, if, if, you, if you want a chance of, of getting them to pay any more attention. Right. It sounds to me just in, in my head, I get the image of movie almost famous or or vinyl. Was I know in 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 vinyl you had you kind of had a hand working with. Well, I was a so-called consultant. You know, they didn't take very much of my advice. Um, as Warren Scorsese, you know, directed the pilot. He's made some of the best music documentaries ever. Yeah, so Dylan, George Harrison, yeah. Last Waltz. You go down the list and. 
you know, uh, he had his own ideas about this, as did Terrence Winter, who wrote the pilot, and uh, they worked together on Boardwalk Empire. And I think their fascination with gangsters kind of colored that show. Uh, and I'm not saying there weren't any gangsters around the music business, but not not uh, to the degree that was implied with, with that, not by the 70s. Right. Um, so, yeah, and almost famous, obviously, Cameron Crowe is somebody I, I did know when I first met him. He was a journalist. Uh, he he uh, he covered Led Zeppelin for the Los Angeles Times when he was 15 or 16 when I was their press agent. So I, I'm a great admirer of his from his whole career. I think he's made great movies. But I did first meet him. He was wow. a teenage rock writer. 15. Yeah. Were, were office buildings and and business relationships like they depicted it in the show there there's no question though that that there is a core focus that record companies had then and now about making money and that if you were going to work there whether you were stoned or not whether you're young or old you know you certainly had to understand what the uh, what the goal was of, of the company at a given moment what the priorities were and do your job and if you did a good job you could get away with with with, with certain kinds of behavior and if you didn't it didn't matter how good your behavior was you know uh, it, it's still it's still primarily a business and it's a business that depending on what department it was how much music was actually part of the business i mean if if you were in a warehouse dealing with physical product i mean uh, you might just know the numbers on the albums uh, what the number was for led zeppelin 4 or what the number was and what the wholesale price was and never even meet an artist if you if you were in the A&R department or involved with the recording process uh you know and trying to uh, learn whatever was going on with the current uh, technology and getting a good mix or mastering or or what a song did or didn't have a hook or would or wouldn't be a single you, you might never meet anyone at a retailer you know uh, there were people that were preoccupied with radio promotion that was their world was radio as somebody who entered the business through journalism and press I saw everything through the prism of publicity the people and the the lawyers saw it through the prism of contracts you know the people in the accounting department saw it through the prism of cash flow and profit and loss and if they were part of a corporation, how the statements were uh, rendered. Uh, there was a graphics department that was, uh, you know, th those were art people who knew about graphics. They might not even listen to the music, or they might, you know, but they had to figure out what was a good album cover. So, you know, there were a lot of different factors going on all at the same time and different kinds of people. Uh, uh, some of them yelled, some of them didn't, you know, but what mattered was uh, having hits throughout your career it seems like you've had a hand in in so many of these different parts some of them not all of them right I know you've probably been asked this millions of times but something that I would love to hear about is just Swan Song Records and, and how working with Peter Grant was and were you just kind of thrown into that position? Well, I, I mentioned earlier that I'd gotten this job at Salters and Roskin and um, you know I was only there a few months first they were just sort of giving me clients that they had, they weren't necessarily rock clients, but music clients, and I was just trying to learn what their process was and broaden my notion of what the media was. It wasn't just rock writers, there were all these other media that had people that maybe covered entertainment in general or things like that. And then one day Lee Soldiers asked, we want Led Zeppelin. 
So I said, uh, yes, they're the big, like, by 70, this is the, the, the March or so of 1973. By this time, Zeppelin's released uh, four albums. Their previous one had right. Stairway to Heaven on it. They were the biggest yeah. concert attraction in the world. It was, a, it was not a hard question to answer. And were you, uh, were you a fan at the time? I wasn't a big fan. You know, I was a little old. You know, I was 22, 23. And the core fans for Zeppelin were like 14. Right. So there's a big difference between being 14 and 23 today and, and then. And so my favorites were Dylan, Hendrix, the people that I listened to in high school. And Zeppelin came along. You know, one of my favorite groups in high school was Cream, which was Eric Clapton's first big band. And I looked at Zeppelin as kind of derivative of Cream. Jimmy Page had also been in the Yardbirds the way Eric Clapton had. So I kind of knew some of their songs. I respected them, but I wasn't like a diehard Zeppelin fan. I was a little old to be in that core obsessive fan group, but I certainly knew how big they were. Right. And Lee said, look, I don't understand that kind of music. He said, I'm of the Guy Lombardo generation. Guy Lombardo was like this guy that did like dance music for, you know, the 40s, you know. And... Uh, so the first meeting with Zeppelin, he came, and then after that, he, you know, was my client, you know, and uh, I got to know them, did publicity for the 73 tour. That's where I first met Cameron, you know, because he did the LA Times piece. Uh, and, um, and then uh, in the fall, um, their lawyer, whose name was Steve Weiss, was the other, the one American that worked full-time for Zeppelin was, was Steve. I mean, he had a couple of other clients, but it was kind of like mainly Peter Grant and Zeppelin right. and said that Peter Grant wanted to, uh, to to talk to me about a job for a company they were creating. So Peter Grant had been Zeppelin's manager from their beginning. He he was a very intimidating guy. He was uh, uh, 300 pounds, uh, been a professional wrestler and a tough guy, very intimidating, uh, came from a poor part of London, had a thick Cockney accent. But incredibly smart. And so even though we had different backgrounds and he was older than me, I guess he's at least 10 years older than me, probably 15 or 20 years older than me, he knew the band wanted this piece of the puzzle, which was to be represented in the press uh, correctly. They hadn't gotten very good press in their early years. And, and I was had the long hair and was early 20s and kind of fit in as somebody just to hang out in the dressing room easier than guys with suits you know right and um and uh offered me the job uh originally it was that i want to be head of publicity and i said well if i'm going to deal with the record company on things like maybe a broader title so he said like what i said how about vice president oh so you worked your way in <laughs> so he said fine i mean there was no company it was him right uh, so i was the only vice president so he said fine so that was my title was vice president of swanson my job was 75 percent to do publicity yeah and the other 25 percent to be a liaison to atlantic records which really was responsible for all of swanson swanson was what we call today would call an imprint it was a it was a vehicle for the members of Zeppelin to sign artists who they liked and to have the image of having their own label. But I was like me and two people who worked for me. That was the label. It was really Atlantic and getting their promotion and sales department directed and motivated. So I spent a lot of my time at Atlantic trying to uh, represent Swan Song's interests in that context. How did Bad Company shake that all up? Well, Peter one day said, I want you to hear this new band. It's Paul Rogers from Free and Mick Ralphs from uh, Mata Hoople. 
and then it turned out the drummer Simon Kirk was also from Free, and uh, and the bass player was a guy named Boz Burrell who'd been in King Crimson. So, in those days, people would call people who when when people came from different groups, they would call it a super group. It wasn't exactly a super group because it's not like Free were superstars, but they'd had a couple of great singles, and I loved Free, especially that song "All Right Now" and "Wishing Well." And so Paul Rogers was a singer I was familiar with from those. I thought of him more as a singles band. I'd never seen Free live, but those were two incredible songs. Those are great songs. And 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 uh, you know he uh, he was managing them and signed them, and that ended up being the first album. It was called Bad Co, and it was ended up being the first album that was released on uh, on uh, uh, Swan Song Records. They had another artist named Maggie Bell that was the first record that they put out on the label, but they hadn't named the label yet. So it came out on Atlantic Records and then later retroactively became a swan song thing. So, you know, Bad Company, I mean, that working for Zeppelin was extremely complicated, not because it was hard to get press to be interested in them, but because they were so big, but because the guys in the band were temperamental and didn't always want to do things and they they were very particular about who they wanted to talk to and uh, the level, the stature of what we wanted to get with, you know, I wanted to get be, to them to be treated in a certain way because right. they, in their mind, they were on the same level as the Rolling Stones. Commercially, they were on the same level as the Rolling Stones. They were selling more concert tickets no and more records than the Rolling Stones. But in terms of the mythology of the press, they weren't. The Rolling Stones had been part of the B British invasion, and Mick Jagger was, you know, this international superstar. So there was always this stress of, well, you know, would the Stones do this and that kind of a thing. So I was constantly anxiety ridden about doing anything for Zeppelin. And by the grace of God, I did a good, good enough job that they continued to like me. Bad Company, on the other hand, was ridiculously easy. It was like, just we mailed out the record, you know, in those days, uh, there was no you know, sending a file, you know, you physically would put a record into an envelope and mail it to somebody. And I mean, vinyl records, you know, there were promo copies, advanced pressings. And, and then like the next week, like Joan Downs from Time Magazine called and said, oh my God, I love this record. I, you know, we're doing something on Bad Company. It's like, I had, I had been um, obsessed with getting people into Time Magazine ever since I started being a publicist and it struck out every single time, even the Led Zeppelin 1973 tour, uh, where we got them good enough press that they were really happy with the results and hired me to work for them full time. Even then I couldn't get Time Magazine to cover that's Led Zeppelin because, you know, they, they only covered a limited amount of rock and roll. You know, they mostly covered classical music. And so, and, and so like right away, um, just people heard that record and it was, um, the first song uh, was Can't Get Enough of Your Love, which became a number one single, like, very quickly. And it was also number one on the rock radio stations uh, here in Boston, the big station, and was WBCN. So, you know, it was played on WBCN and the pop station, WRKO. It was number one album, number one single within, like, six or eight weeks. And suddenly everybody acted like I'd added 100 points to my IQ. Now I was, quote unquote, running a label that had a number one album. The truth is, it was it was like literally one of those records where just people heard it and it just fit the sounds of what radio stations wanted to play, what rock fans wanted, and it was really easy. The touring side of it required a little bit of effort, you know, uh, 
I, I, uh, Peter was also their manager and I represented his interests as a manager as well and we had to get them on an American tour and but the big agency then was Premier Talent and even though Peter had a fight with them earlier somehow they agreed to book Bad Company anyway Zeppelin had been with Premier and then he yanked them and decided he didn't need a booking agent after a couple of tours wow. which saved them 10% but it was a radical thing to do, and it, it was a shocking thing in the in the existing business. It's the kind of thing Peter Grant did a lot of, which was to understand the value of the artist in the marketplace and to eliminate unnecessary profit participants once Zeppelin was a superstar. Right. And and um, but Premier Talent took you know, and I remember we got them uh, we got them on a a, a tour headlined by the Edgar Winter Group. Edgar Winter was managed by a, a, the first manager I'd been friends with, a guy named Steve Paul, who hung around with rock writers and stuff. And and then after that, you know, they did a few other opening act slots, but after one tour, they were a headliner and they were pretty easy to deal with. Uh, Mick Ralphs, um, the guitar player, liked to do the interviews. Paul, even though he was the lead singer and wrote the lyrics, just very shy and really did not like talking to the press. He would do it if he absolutely had to. He was a nice man but just shy and not, not Mr. Schmooze the way Robert Plant of Zeppelin was. So Mick Ralphs was Mr. Schmooze and he ended up being the main guy that did the interviews. Wow. Great inner liner on that, on that record too. I have that on, on my wall where they're watching Looney Tunes. And... Yeah. Yeah. So that was just luck. I mean, I thought me being able to hang on and work with Zeppelin, I, I take some credit for that. That was a complicated group of people to navigate and it took my, best of me to, to both do the professional part of it and to stay in sync with them personally but bad company I was in the right place at the right time just right. no question about it and did that lead you into working with Atlantic no there was quite a gap in between you know when you're talking about 50 years there's a lot of different stages yeah, right. you know it's <laughs> kind of weird to have been around that long but after a few years uh, by the by by uh, by the middle of 76 that's now three years I'd kind of work with Peter Grant Zeppelin in one capacity or another, and I had a falling out with, with him. Uh, I had disagreements about what they were doing with one of the acts, and then I wanted to manage somebody on my own, and he thought that would distract from focusing on the label. He was 100% right, by the way. Uh, even though I I was right about some of my criticisms, it was uh, you know it was not really. Um, if if I if I was in his position, I would have fired me also. You know now knowing now what I know then about kind of how these relationships work. But but I had a reputation from having been Zeppelin's publicist. And I, I so I started a, a PR firm and I got clients right away because having, that was such a valuable Leverage. credential was having been Zeppelin's publicist and, 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 and the bad company thing. I had been associated with high profile things. So within like the first month of me saying I was doing it, I got um, I got Kiss as a client, I got Bearsville Records as a client. So I started the company in my living room. The first couple of months, I couldn't afford office space. Uh, you know, I, I'd kind of live in the bedroom, and people would come in in the living room. A couple of people, and we, you know, but but within a few months, I was able to afford to rent offices and had a PR company for a few years. In the business department, in our entrepreneur classes and stuff, we talk a lot about when is the right time to actually found your own company, whether you've worked for someone for a while or whether you just dive right into it and learn? I mean, the only reason I ever founded companies was because I couldn't get jobs. 
you know, it wasn't like I, some great entrepreneur that had a vision and I'm going to become, you know, Michael Bloomberg and make billions of dollars or David Geffen and figure out how to leverage things. I always did it out of a sense of uh, what else, what else can I do? And and I did it Uh. out of necessity. There's two things, you know, there's two elements. So say in my instance, I knew about how to do publicity based on my jobs. I knew how to write a press release. I had a press list. I knew the people to call. I knew how to handle it when I spoke to them. When do you take people to lunch? When do you get people backstage? Uh, how do you uh, how do you talk to an artist to help them focus on what their right message should be? Those those mechanical elements of PR, I was pretty confident in having done it for three years right. at, a, at, a, at a, within the subculture of rock and roll at a high level, not in show business writ large. But but I didn't know anything about um, running a business. Uh, and, um, and, uh, you know, how, how to budget and, uh, uh, how to really plan, uh, hiring people and how many people do you hire and what do you pay them and right. uh, dealing with, uh, the, um, the payroll aspects of it, the legal, uh, the withholding tax and, uh, dealing with, um, uh, collections of money and banks and, you know, so that was really a, a disadvantage. If I had it to do over again, if I could have just taken a pill at many, many times in my life and internalized just accounting principles, business principles, mechanical reality of how to run a business and how to deal with other business people, I think I would have been more um, financially secure today. Um, I look at... Uh, you know, I had to learn that I had no education in business and, and I don't think that's a plus. That was I had no choice and I learned as I went along. I'm still learning as I go along. That's a that's a last last resort. It's better if you could, uh, you know, in retrospect, if I could have taken a couple of business courses, I might have been able to organize things a little bit more efficiently. But uh, I was in the midst of just trying to live my life and make a living and it worked out fine but I wouldn't suggest anyone else follow the particular pathway that I took you've been on the cusp of so many cultural movements whether it be the late 60s and 80s and then into into the early 90s and and grunge how throughout the whole thing did you keep up with the culture or, or did you did you kind of just let things roll I wish I'd done it. I wish I had a better sense of the culture today than I do, but it's harder. It's a challenge as you get older. Um, and there are people that are really disciplined uh, about, I mean, the way to stay up is just do the work, listen to whatever is in the top 10, uh, you know, uh, listen to the radio stations, uh, go and onto now today with Spotify or Apple Music. You can just hear the playlist of the popular things. You can click on to the websites. You can keep educated about what's going going on. I can't say that the last 20 years I've done that with the same level of intensity I did when I was younger. You know, this period of my life, I'm kind of working with a smaller roster. They're mostly artists in in genres that I know the best, rock and roll or Americana, uh, a little blues, you know, and uh, mostly for older audiences. And And I'm proud to work with the people I work with today, but there's vast swaths of culture that I'm ignorant about. Uh, that's just kind of where I am in my arc of a, of a, of a career and how I'm handling things when I'm also, you know, writing books at the same time. But in general, I think, I think you, you, you just do the work people I see in the office, if they don't have anything to do, it's like, go listen to the top 10. 
you can go now and 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 you could you could you could get almost uh, so many radio stations or services online you know just read pitchfork backward and forth and all the other things stay uh, you know the one thing a young person has as an advantage is they can just know more about stuff because the older people have other responsibilities we don't always have quite as much physical energy uh, we've got other obligations and interests and and you know just be the best informed person in the room that's what a young person can can bring to the table you know they're not going to bring usually capital unless they have an inherited wealth or or um, or experience but they can bring an awareness of what's going on on the ground and that becomes the currency through which you become valuable to people well thanks for tuning into cut time as always information and in future episodes can be found at the mbj.org thanks and see you next time